What is Crackalackin' Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, about to come at you with my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel. We are going to dive into our first mailbag of the season and also some Ben Simmons talk, but it's not the discussion about Ben Simmons that you think it is. So stay tuned for that. Just a quick reminder before we get started to please, please, pretty please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing, above all, to Hardware Knox wherever you get your podcast. Whether you use iTunes or not, we ask that you head over there, throw us a five-star rating, write a review. Those help us out a ton on the charts, in addition to obviously subscribing and downloading every episode. If this is your first time listening to Hardware Knox, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We cover the NBA at large, have a ton of fun doing it. Do not take ourselves too serious, too seriously, but pride ourselves on being thorough. That's it. That's how to, well, well, I guess follow us on Twitter at Hardware Knox. You can follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardware Knox. We will come right up. We are also on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. With all that out of the way, let's get into our first mailbag of the season. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. It's our first mailbag episode of the now in progress 2021-22 NBA season. So we're excited, even if the response to our prompts for questions was low enough that you might have thought I sent the tweet, since typically I'm the one who doesn't get responses, but it was actually Dan. So just, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're enjoying the mailbag episodes, if you're enjoying any episodes at all, just keep your eyes peeled for, for those prompts because you have a chance to be featured in these episodes with one of your questions. Before we dive into the actual questions that we did get, how's it going, Dan? I am spectacular over here. I'll take, I'll take responsibility for the less than stellar response. And we normally have so many great questions. I think I sent it out like in the middle of football Sunday. So that's on me. I have to, I mean, I have to we, pick the timing better. We did get more responses than the Kansas City Chiefs scored points. That's always a plus. And that would normally be Is like season, a pretty though? high bar. Yeah, I was about to say. Right. But it's like right. a it's it's a pretty low bar this season. So that doesn't make me as happy. I'm pretty sure that you and I could both like play on that offensive line at this point. So but that's that's neither here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I uh went to a pumpkin patch with uh my my parents, my wife and my kid and took some some holiday themed pictures and got some stuff for jack-o'-lantern carving. Uh, later this afternoon today. So got some fresh air. I'm I'm ready to go though and, and talk some basketball. Wow. If you're listening to this, just think about how Adam has already carved his jack-o'-lantern. Like he said this, but it's already done. You're, there will be no like pictures it. because I have I have no artistic talent whatsoever. I struggle with stick figures. So like, it's gonna be a disaster, but he won't know any better. So that's that's what matters. <laughs> Are you ready? Let's uh so I wanted to begin before we went into this uh mailbag with air quotes because we have like I think seven questions but i wanted to talk about ben simmons one i know some people are exhausted from it i have some so i have some i have many layers of takes here that i will try and make succinct i i don't like when people act like they're above the ben simmons thing to talk about it i understand if you don't want it to dominate the nba news cycle but it's a real thing that's happening this is a wildly important player to what's supposed to be one of the best teams in the league and it's turned into a shit show. That's headline news. Now, if you want to make fun of the reporting, I'm here for the jokes. I've made plenty of them on Twitter. It feels like both sides are handling this situation very poorly. The two things that I take issue with is, and it, they're on both sides of the fence. It, and maybe it's three things, because I think the, the overarching point is we need to be able to have like discussions where there's a gray area that not everything is so cut and dry. 
the people that think they're somehow pro labor by just taking Ben Simmons side. I can't bring myself to understand that when you're talking about someone who is going to make nearly $150 million over the next four years. And this isn't a millionaire versus billionaire thing because he's impacting other people on the team. It's not even just the front highly paid front office guys. It's not just Embiid, but it's like lower level guys on the team, lower level guys within this organization. If this blows up in the Sixers face, there are going to be people that lose their jobs. Like there are, there's a trickle down effect to this. I'm not looking at Ben Simmons who is rich and has the flexibility to do what he wants as me being pro labor. There is, when we were talking about the middle of the pandemic and NBA teams were saying, oh, we'll match whatever our players raise. Like, yes, you want to go that route where these teams are worth billions and billions of dollars and they're putting the onus on the, the millionaire players um, to go out and have an impact on the community first before they do anything. I'm totally with you. The other thing, and this is from someone who, is, who thinks that Ben Simmons has handled this situation less than ideally. We got to be more sensitive to mental well-being here. We can't just automatically assume that he is faking a mental health issue here. I, for one, look, if you, don't th- if, if you think that this is a ruse, and I hope it's not. I hope the thing that he's not mentally ready to play is not a ruse. But if you think it's a ruse, I kind of understand that based off how everything has unfolded to this point. There's that's not what you're you can make a joke about. Like you want to talk about the report that came out that uh, his camp thinks that the Sixers were too good for him to develop. Yes, that is fucking stupid. That is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. But like this is someone who, regardless of what you if you think that he's not willing to improve, that's a different discussion. But I, if someone is going to say that they're not mentally ready to do something after they just went through this entire process where I have to imagine like this isn't just a unilateral Ben Simmons decision. He has people in his ear, Rich Paul or whoever else is at clutch sports. Like, do we think it was Ben Simmons's decision alone to hold out or then to show up? No, there are people in his ear. This is still a very young kid who, again, even if you don't think he's right in this situation, I would argue no one's right at this point because the Sixers overplayed their hand. Whatever Doc Rivers wants to claim he was misquoted, even though you look at that, after the game seven verbatim, him basically saying, I don't know if Ben sucks or not is, is essentially what it amounted to. No one has handled the situation properly, but we can't jump to this conclusion that he's just faking not being mentally ready. I could see after everything he's gone through, after all the voices that we know are in his ear, having to go back to an organization that James Harden trade aside. Yes, there's an out. This is why you get paid all this money in the NBA is to be a part of those transactions. I know people like to think that they're above transactions now too. I understand that it can take focus away from the actual game. I totally get that. I want to talk about basketball just as much as the next person. I also appreciate transactions. I also appreciate the human element behind them now more so than I ever had. There's a balance there. But part of the reason you're getting paid all this money is because your name is going to be thrown. And that's, that's part of the, the MO. That being said, there's a difference between being involved in James Harden rumors and then just knowing that your team wants to get rid of you, which is where I think Ben Simmons has been for quite some time, at least since the end of last season. So you're dealing with that, showing up to a team that you don't think actually wants you long-term. Now, maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you're fed up with your teammates um, because Joel Embiid, you know, and and look, Joel Embiid's response to when the report came out that Ben Simmons doesn't think they're a good fit or whatever. I don't think that was Ben Simmons that leaked that himself. And we got to stop calling them leaks, but like, that's not, that's, there's so many people involved in that decision-making part of the process. You're now going back to a team where it's hard to own up and say, maybe I went about this the wrong way, 
or you're facing all these guys who know you don't want to be there, or you're facing these guys for the first time after you made what they deemed this mission-critical season-ending mistake against Atlanta. And look, newsflash, terrible decision by Ben in the moment. I will argue until the end of time, there's never one reason any team lost a game. One play does not decide an entire game. I still think that the criticism is fair game there, but there are issues like the Sixers had opportunities aside from that moment to win the series to get back in that game specifically. I understand being frustrated with Ben Simmons. I understand, and I think you should be frustrated with him and the Sixers, but the the mental health stuff is where I draw the line with thinking he's faking it or making jokes about that. And my final point, this is a little bit longer than I want it to be, is I could see him not wanting to face the Philly fans. And I'm not calling out the Sixers fan base. They are one of the most loyal, enthusiastic fan bases in the NBA, but they're Probably one of the more, you want to call them honest or brutal, however you want to put it. Now you have to go to home games, if, if they even play them in home games at this point, and face them where they're probably going to boo you. And they're not out there booing Daryl Morey for his role in this. They're not out there booing the Sixers because they failed to trade for James Harden or because they failed to find a package for Ben Simmons yet. They're, I think most people, most fans have been pretty pro. Uh, you know, NBA Twitter seems to be lean more towards Simmons and then actual fans of the, like the game or the Sixers seem to be more pro, like what the fuck the Sixers are doing everything right. Just based off what I've seen in my mentions, it just makes me, wherever you fall in that, it makes me uncomfortable that we're okay still in this climate. And not that we ever should have been, but as this has become more of a focus, more of a revelation at how important mental health is, especially for these athletes who are just so exposed I don't, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that we can jump to jokes or the, to the conclusion that he's faking it when I think there are legitimate, authentic, genuine reasons why he might not be mentally ready to play right now. And this is me being talking from my perspective where I don't know that I could play in this situation. So I'm not trying to project that onto him. I just see a scenario in which this is a real thing that he is struggling with. I had no idea where you were going to take this because with the topic of Ben Simmons, there are a bajillion directions that you can go right now because so much is in flux. And then you basically stole all of my talking points. So I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I was very uncomfortable when people were making jokes about the back injury, maybe air quotes around the back injury because we don't really know, but you know, it's, if it's a real injury, which it very well could be given his history with injuries, that's a bad look. And then the poking fun at the mental health stuff is an even bigger deal to me. And regardless of how that would have developed, if it does exist, it's at least in some part self-inflicted because he has, you know, put himself in this situation by refusing to, you know, to, to find any compromise to, play the style of basketball that people have wanted, the lack of development, maybe the lack of work on his game, all of that, but it doesn't even matter because self-inflicted or not, this is still a young human being who has had to deal with all sorts of vitriol just heaped upon his shoulders for months on end. The subject of constant jokes, of constant scrutiny, of constant criticism. That's going to take its toll, regardless of whether you're the one who caused it or not. So yeah, like, of course, he might not be mentally ready to play right now. And it's so easy 
to make the jokes. And I get the urges because we all have to fight those back, to be honest. I mean, this, this situation has devolved so much that like that is a natural instinct to, to poke fun at the situation. But I think it's, it's just important to take that step back and recognize all of the factors that led us to get to this point and then just have a little bit more grace than we like to on Twitter. Yeah. And look, I have made jokes about it and I, and I guess I can admit to being a hypocrite. There's a, I had a tweet. I did, like I don't even, I muted it. It was like, did a 1500, it went viral. Is that what it's called? Viral where I had Ben Simmons and the Sixers handling the situation. They're both on bikes. They stick sticks in the spokes of their bikes and they both fall off. That is like, if you want to say that that's wrong and that I'm being a hypocrite for that, that's fine. But it's like, I'm poking fun at the general situation, which right. to some extent is comical. And I think, again, the criticism of how both sides have handled this fair game, the mental health stuff specifically just makes me wildly uncomfortable. And you don't think, the other thing is like, the Sixers are still allowing him to be away from the team now through this. Like, they seem to be taking it more seriously, unless this is a facade, which I am, when it just comes to someone's mental health, I'm not going to claim that it is. But like they seem to understand, like Joel Embiid, even people were making fun that he slipped it into the crowd before the Sixers' first home game, like Ben is still our brother. But it seems like the team is now understanding that maybe there is this immense pressure on Ben Simmons or that he really is in a not the best state of mind right now. If they can understand it, like we need to be able to understand it too. And like that's where the I understand Twitter's not the place for nuance, and I totally get that. I accept that. There are elements of me that embrace that. But like we got that stuff is just so wildly uncomfortable and, and just bad, mm. bad faith. Right there with you. But you ready to jump into the mailbag with that out of the way? Yeah, let's start with a question from Dr. Ramblings. Before we get there, I want to start with my own question for you. Wow, that was you just overrode a listener. I did. You just cut in line. You I didn't did. even let the listener go first. Because I know that the listener questions are going to be better than mine. So I just wanted to make sure that we got to my inevitably worse question. I have to remember to tag you in the mailbag tweet to thank you for the question, like I do with everyone who asks. As me. you should. As you should. But I, I wanted to, to quickly look back at the 2019 NBA draft where the top five picks were Zion Williamson, John Morant, RJ Barrett, DeAndre Hunter, and Darius Garland. And I'm curious, given the start that we've seen from John Morant this season, given the continuing health issues, the potential uneasy situation in New Orleans with Zion, would you draft Zion and Ja in that same order right now? <laughs> Yeah. Have we reached have we reached a tipping point where like Morant because it, it was a legitimate question coming out of their rookie seasons, coming into this season, like John Morant has been good enough that you can make a, a realistic argument that he should be the top pick. And I'm curious if enough has happened to this point that you're willing to kind of switch there. You mean flip flop jaw for Zion? Yeah, should in a redraft now, would you take John Morant or Zion Williamson at number one? I would still in a vacuum. still in a vacuum. Like we're not saying that they're going to end up in New Orleans. I would still take Zion, but I think we're probably coming closer to it being a discussion. The primary reason for me why would just be Zion's health, mm-hmm. because when he was on the court last year, he he probably should if he was played in more games, and even he maybe should he might have just been a snub. He he played like an All NBA guy, so he feels like that automatic All NBA type player. But it does, if you're going to factor in health specifically, and there's a chance that Jaw gets better and his, you know, starts hitting his threes more and even his mid range game is more efficient. 
it feels like it's more of a discussion now than I think most people would have assumed it would be at the end of last season, even. Yeah, I think I think I'm ready to make the switch. Honestly, oh, um, I, I still think Zion is just this generational talent, like an easy All NBA inclusion when he's healthy and playing at full strength. He has the higher ceiling, and you know if if we're looking at it mathematically, like he's probably going to have a higher range of positive outcomes. But right now, I also think that he has a lot more lower outcomes. And I'm just, you know, it's it's hard to read in, like this is a, a good way to come out of the Ben Simmons discussion into this because I think they're they're related to some extent. Like it's hard to read into what exactly his mentality is. Like he, we we know that he has showed up to camp out of shape multiple times. We know that he had this foot injury and reportedly ballooned to over 300 pounds during the recovery process and didn't tell the team about it and does not look ready to play. We don't have a timetable for his return. And I just, I keep getting these like later career shack vibes where he knew he was that good and could play himself into shape during the regular season. And that has to matter. I think so like, Peak Zion is still unbelievable, but given the importance of the point guard position in today's NBA, given the control of the offense we're seeing from Ja through just a few games during this now in progress campaign, like I think I'm ready to to flip flop them. But I re- I also I do that fully cognizant of the risk because if Zion is healthy, if Zion is motivated, that has the potential to look really bad. Yeah, I think that's a spicy take, not an illegitimate one at this point. And where I would provide the pushback is how much of this is just, can he plead being 21 years old? And like how in tune, I know you weren't a professional athlete, but how in tune were you with your diet and your body? Oh, I'm still how not. How disciplined were you? But that's my point is there's a chance. And I'm not saying the injuries, that could be related. It could be not related to it. Um, how much how, how much are the Pelicans responsible here if they're responsible at all for just like the you know would this are reviewing his injury situation differently if there was more transparency would be my question to that but you could fast forward I can envision a scenario where as Zion grows and matures and is in better shape like even if it maybe takes three or four years or something we're talking about a generational guy the flip side of that argument would be there are a lot of people that subscribe to the idea because he's built so uniquely, even if Zion's in peak shape, like just looking at peak Shaq, that his prime could technically be shorter because yep. of how much of an, um, of an anomaly he is, in which case that is inherently going to make John Morant more appealing because would you rather have, let's say, 10, a decade of MVP caliber play or 12 to 13 years of second team all NBA? I'm just I'm throwing scenarios right. out there. Right. Yeah. And I I think there is something to the idea that his frame is uniquely built and it is set up in a way that is going to lead to injuries because he plays with so much force generated and it's going to take a toll on the joints. It's going to take a toll on the feet. And his frame is not built to be under 280 pounds or whatever, if he's going to play with the powerful style with which he operates. So to me, I'm kind of looking at it like if we assume health, I still don't think that you're going to consistently get more than 65 to 70 games from Zion during an average season, even when he's fully functioning. And would you rather have 70 games of Zion or 80 games of John Morant? And I think that That's a great the scales are kind of tipping towards the Morant side right now, because I don't even know if we're going to get 70. 
bookmark this take at Frommel09. Again, I, I, I fully acknowledge <laughs> just how poorly this could age because Zion is a generational talent when he's able to operate. Like once he started running the show and running pick and rolls this past season, like it was transcendent. He was unbelievably good. You can make a legitimate case that he's going to push his way into the top 10 player conversation, but that precludes availability. And that has to, that has to matter. I still think like, I need to see how this season unfolds. Probably. I still think we're just a scotch away from it being that far. It's too early for this. Like I said, I think the take is spicy, not illegitimate at this point. Now can Dr. Ramblings ask his question? Damn, bro. Yes. Yeah. If we, Doc, if we want to. Dr. Ramblings asked, the Nuggets are 25 to 1 for a championship. I don't see a team in the West being a runaway favorite. Why not the Nuggets if Jamal Murray comes back healthy? Those odds seem juicy to me. I would jump all over those odds. I think the Nuggets are an eminently reasonable title pick this season, but I, I have a feeling that baked into those odds are the uncertainty. Because Jamal Murray is ultimately returning from an ACL injury at an unspecified point in time. We don't know if it's going to happen shortly after the All-Star break with five games to go and have a limited ramp-up period before the playoffs. And as good as the Denver rotation is without Jamal Murray, I mean, Monte Morris, Facundo Campazzo, Austin Rivers, Bones Highland, like that's a good backup guard rotation. But this team isn't the same if Jamal Murray isn't available. And that has to be baked into the odds. Now, if you want to say like, yeah, those seem pretty juicy. Like I'm going to jump all over those. Then go right ahead because at peak powers, this Denver team is 100% capable of winning a title. Jokic just continues to be unbelievable. Uh, against the Spurs on Friday night, 32-16-7, and seven, and it looked casual. It didn't look like a standout performance. You saw a few of the Sambor shuffles. You saw him you know, get exposed on the interior a little bit during the first half when he wasn't fully engaged. But in the second half when he was there, like just an unstoppable force, and there is no counter to him right now. And he could easily carry a team to the playoffs, through the playoffs, even without Murray. But you don't want to bet on the nuggets at whatever those odds were. I think 25 to one is what you said. If Murray isn't there. And right now, like we have no, we have no knowledge of when exactly he'll be back on the court, what he's going to look like, what kind of ramp up period is going to be necessary. And the Western conference is stocked with contenders. I would agree with everything you said there. Also, Jokic threw that pass where he like bent corners essentially, like just and then Porter just bricked it. Right, but the pass itself was incredible. The I I think you're, it comes down to whether Jamal Murray is going to be available. And the other thing is just like, what does he look like after a torn ACL, yeah. not playing for almost a year? Because if if Jamal Murray was healthy, like had the Nuggets begun this season at full strength, the teams at full strength. So we'll include the Nets here. Like, let's pretend that Kyrie Irving isn't a dumbass. You, I don't know if I'm the, capable of doing that. You probably have the nets, or I shouldn't say dumbass. That's rude. Contrarian without a cause is the no, best way. No, you can way say though. dumbass. Okay, it, he's a dumbass. So the nets, and I think I would probably put the full strength. Like that's how perfect this team would seem on paper with a healthy Jamal Murray. Right. If you want to make the gamble that Jamal Murray will be available, and let's say like eighty percent of the Jamal Murray that they need, for sure. There's also an out. Could they win the title without him? I think so. so. So do I. That's how wide open it is right now. I think like it, it, I think Look, the Nuggets Russ, are. My, Russell I haven't Westbrook made an might official. be the Nuggets' fourth best player at this point. <laughs> if you're looking at the championship discussion, I have not made an official title pick, um, and I'm not prepared to yet because it's just a weird season where there are so many 
teams that are are fully competitive and capable of getting there. But like Denver might be my leading choice. Oh, that's interesting. With see, I need to see Jamal Murray before I could get there. Full disclosure, if we were doing stock up, stock down, which maybe that's a separate podcast, stock up, stock down on our preseason award picks that we did not put on Hardwood Knox yet. Uh, I had the Suns as my title pick. This was post-Kyrie news. Otherwise, I would have assumed that it's the Nets. I would probably say my, my stock feels a little bit down on that. Mm-hmm. Teams seem to have figured out like their offense, and they're going to need to either put a bunch more consistent pressure on the rim or get people to start hitting these pull-up threes. My point being... It's so wide open to where if you told me that the Nuggets won it this season without Jamal Murray, I wouldn't. Would I assume that yes, the Nets didn't get Kyrie Irving back at some point? I might, but that does not seem blasphemous by by any stretch. Yeah. So yes, jump all over those odds if if you're feeling intrigued at all by the Nuggets because they are favorable. If we assume that we're going to get anything from Murray. The next question comes from Thomas Rodriguez as. Tyler Hero plus minus versus other third year players. I don't really know how to put this versus, but Tyler Hero is a plus 12 through his first three games this season. I think it's been three games. I didn't check that. He is within the top six of third year players. Can you guess which third year player ranks first? I have no idea. I don't really pay attention to plus minus because it's so misleading. It's misleading, but when it's such a small sample size, um, I'm not like net rating would just be through right. two or three games just seems like a little bit ridiculous. Can you get, Oh, you're not even going to venture. I, no, I'm not even going to venture guess. So technically I know some people are going to provide pushback on this, but it's Michael Porter jr. And I think the argument there would be, okay, well that he missed his rookie season, yada, yada, yada but he's a third year player. That and speaking of misleading, like his game against the Spurs, the same one that we talked all this praise for Jokic in was as bad as you're ever going to see. Fair enough. Can you, um, I need to get, um, can you guess who is in second place? Are you, you even, you don't even want to venture? No, not, like, yeah. I'm not going to venture. Yes. All right. That's, I find that like a little bit rude, but that's fine. <laughs> um, second is Terrence Mann. All right. Fourth. And this is just what I wanted to get down to is RJ Barrett. Proving for all that he's the greatest player alive. It sounds about right. But let's let's talk about Tyler Hero because it seemed like he uh he was due for a breakout following just the the magnificent preseason efforts, even if his sophomore season was a bit disappointing. And well, he has come out of the gate can, swinging. Can I can we can we talk about that for a minute? What is disappointing about a second year player, his age twenty one season? Averaging 15.1 points, 3.4 assists, shooting 36% from three on, I think, seven attempts per 36 minutes, uh, six and a half attempts per 36 minutes, and shooting 49.8% on twos. What is disappointing about that? It's relative to expectations because coming off of his rookie season, which finished in the bubble where he put all of the shot-making skills on display – a full-fledged breakout was expected his sophomore season and it was dialed up another notch because the heat allegedly refused to include him in trade packages were those expectations unrealistic sure and you know we've talked about this before when i tried to continue to call him overrated when he's probably not there anymore because the expectations dwindled following that lack of growth the sophomore season was fine like he was a useful piece 
but now like he has has it, it looks to me like he is fully blossoming this is the player we expected to see coming out of that bubble experience where not only is he this aggressive shot hunter but he looks more capable of finding open teammates when he draws a little bit of extra defensive attention he seems to be capable of creating for himself at every level of the half court game like this is this is what the heat wanted to see again if they truly did not include him in trade packages for notable star players the uh, look so anyone who listens to podcast regularly understands that i think that was more so the heat recognizing they could not acquire james harden so you might as well I, I made sure that. to say allegedly yeah multiple times <laughs> the expectations then if like if his sophomore season i think he got valuable reps as like a point guard which is probably going to make him more suited to win six man of the year this season he was not my six man of the year pick um i kind of looking back i wish i would have picked him do you know who i picked to win six man of the year or should i just save that for if we do the stock up stock down save podcast it. save it okay i'll tell you off air though because it's going to excite you i think so I'm I'm with you. And I think that this is going to end up being a breakout year for him because the Heat are also better suited, especially when Kyle Lowry's there, to uh, make life a little bit easier on him, just looking at what Kyle Lowry can do from the point of attack. He's more of a threat. He's a, a higher-end threat than a Goran Dragic. And you could also argue that he's just more available. I love the idea of playing Hero and Lowry together, where I think with Dragic and Hero, that becomes an issue defensively. Anyway, this is what he's been spectacular to start the year. Nothing to disagree. I just have a fun stat for you. He's only played in two games. Only one player in the NBA is averaging more made off the dribble jumpers per game right now than Tyler Hero. Do you care to venture a guess who that player is? Steph Curry. Kevin Durant. Yeah, you know. Steph Curry had that trash game where he posted a triple That's double, true. don't forget. So That's true. He's having, he's having a great year, and I think that he's going to end up being – I don't know if he's going to be a star, but like this is someone who – I don't think he's going to shoot 58% on twos forever – but he's shooting like 36% on off the dribble threes right now. I think that's a sustainable number. And that this is someone who could run second units. Maybe he's part of your closing lineup, depending on whether you want PJ Tucker on the court or Duncan Robinson on the court or whoever, but he's good. And he looks more confident when he gets into the lane as a decision maker as well. 28 and a half points per game is obviously going to regress a little bit, but at the same time, like, I'm not sure by how much it's going to regress because this heat team is still built to need someone like him who can generate offense from anywhere. You, ideally, you're not asking Jimmy Butler to score 28 points a game. You're not asking Bam Adebayo to be a 20-point-per-game scorer. Kyle Lowry has always been more valuable in areas other than scoring. And I think Hero is fully primed to get enough opportunities where, like, you told me he finished the season averaging upwards of 20 a game off the bench. I, I think I can see that somewhat. I can see it. I'm just curious to see, like, what does it look like when Kyle Lowry's really in his bag and not taking eight a shot, eight right. shot attempts in, in the one game that he plays. Let's move on to this next question, though. Is there from Aaron S. Nelson? Is there a way to determine good mid range versus bad mid range shots? And I feel like I have a very simple answer. If I could go first here, absolutely. If you're taking a catch and shoot two pointer, it's a bad mid range shot. If it's a self created mid-range jumper where you're dribbling into it i don't necessarily means that it's good but that's more of an acceptable mid-range shot to me i don't think the mid-range is dead there's definitely a place for it i think demar derosen certainly showing that with the way he's punished um defenses and mismatches with the bulls so far this season and how that's opened up the offense for everybody else 
But if the end of your possession concludes with a catch and shoot mid range attempt, there's something off with your spacing, and you have also forfeited a more lucrative opportunity by having that catch and shoot player stashed beyond the three point line. That would but be even, my best even idea. then. I think it's situational. I mean, if you if you're the Atlanta Hawks and you're running out a lineup with Gorgie Jang, you probably don't want him stepping out to the three point line too frequently. And if he happens to knock down a catch and shoot elbow jumper, which he's made plenty of times throughout his career, it might not necessarily be the end of the world. I think ultimately the answer to this question is that it's entirely situational. It's far too much of an overly simplified answer to just be like all mid range shots are bad because they're not like we've seen Chris Paul make a living out of snaking out of the pick and roll and hitting an elbow pull up. We've seen Kevin Durant shoot over everyone. There are so many players, DeMar DeRozan and and the list goes on and on who can capably operate in that zone. And even if it lowers your expected points per possession, because, you know, even if you shoot, shoot the three pointers with a slightly lower accuracy rate, like it's going to yield more more points per possession just by virtue of being worth three points instead of two. But at the same time, if you're never taking any mid-range shots to see the Houston Rockets, then defenses don't even have to worry about covering those areas. Like if you do put enough pressure on an opposing defense by showing that you're willing to take the occasional mid-ranger if it's open, if it's the right player taking it, then all of a sudden you force the defense to have to focus on more areas and then you open up better shots from more efficient areas. It's all interconnected and cutting out an entire section of the court is more detrimental even if it leads to more advantageous shots from this, from an, a pure efficiency standpoint. If you want to go with nuance, you'll like Adam's answer better. But if you prefer the blanketed, <laughs> sweeping, oversimplified statement, you'll side with mine. I would agree with you there. But there's, I, I hate that mid range has just been like ascribed this negative connotation completely, where it's to any mid range, where Demar Derozan is less of a player because he takes a lot of mid rangers. No, you know who's less of a player because Russell Westbrook will take a lot of mid rangers and then miss them. Uh, at least the version of Russell Westbrook before this year now it seems like he's missing more threes but i digress there it's in demar Derozan as a player is probably more difficult to build your team around because of the limitations on his overall range it's not because he's a good or mid-range heavy scorer in general most of the time you hear anybody say the analytics say blah 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 they don't really know what they're talking about because analytics don't really say anything so much as give you the data that you can then apply with the proper context in the proper situation. So if anybody's like, oh, analytics say that you should just only take three pointers. No, analytics say mid-rangers are bad. No, they, they, they really don't. Next question from Kim. Are the Chicago Bulls back up? I like this Chicago Bulls team. I was, uh, I think I was pretty firmly on the over, whatever it was set at when we did our over under podcast, but like, it's a fun team. I think that there are still going to be major defensive concerns, but it's a dynamic offense. Lonzo ball is fitting in really well, right off the bat. Patrick Williams continues to be super intriguing. I don't know that I would go so far as saying that the Bulls are a playoff lock, but I'd be pretty surprised if they're not in the play-in conversation. 
So I have you as under for the Bulls at 45, as you lie to our listeners there. Apparently so. The things that I want to see, I, I already mentioned, I like the opportunities the Rosen's creating for others, and he's been able to punish some mis- mismatches and give Chicago another ball handler in the half court. I think that's important. I want to keep some things in perspective. They have beaten the Pistons twice and the Pelicans. So that's, that's something that it doesn't concern me. They're beating the teams that they should beat, but like, let's keep that in perspective here. The other thing with Chicago is their offense still has a ways to go. They're getting to the free throw line in a really good clip. They are about league average in offensive rating through three games. Um, they're not shooting the ball particularly well. What's really been good for them, and I think this is a product of who they're playing, where the Pelicans don't seem like they have a primary ball handler right now, aside from anyone other than Brandon Ingram, which has been a problem, and then the Pistons just being the Pistons. The Bulls are third in points allowed per possession. They are forcing a ton of turnovers. They're third in opponent turnover rate, sixth in opponent effective field goal percentage, and they're second in opponent free throw attempt rate. I Just looking at the personnel... I'll be shocked if they're a top five defensive team all season. I think it's good that they're beating the teams they need to beat, but I still need to see more from this team. I do think though, if you're looking at their first few games and saying it's the offense that needs to figure it out a little bit still, uh, that's, I don't don't know if that's the the ideal scenario, but if that's what you're saying after a three and O start, and I know that their schedule has been fairly light, that's, you know, that's fine because I think you look at this team and you're like, okay, Zach Levine is shooting the ball pretty well. DeMar DeRozan has been, you know, fine. You're probably, Lonzo Ball has been good for them. Um, I think Vooch will shoot the ball better. So, like, there are, you know, there are things to like, but I, I do also get a little bit concerned. It's nice to see Javante Green so far have, like, a regular role. But sort of once you get past their top six guys, I just have a lot of questions when you're leaning on a, an Alizé Johnson or even a Javante Green, a Troy Brown, Troy Brown Jr., et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. There are definitely some ugly lineups that they can throw out there. Uh, the rolling team rating that we use at NBA Math, which looks at a team's offensive offensive and defensive performance relative to the league average, and then also adjusts for home and away back-to-backs, the difficulty of the schedule and all that, over a team's last 20 games. Um, so right now, like the data points are for the, the Bulls are based on three games from this season and 17 from the last season. But they've sneakily been a pretty league average team since roughly late February this year. So this team has already shown that when you adjust for those contextual factors, that it is at least competitive. And this roster is unquestionably better than it was last season. There's more upside. There's more top level talent. So I, I don't know how exactly it's going to pan out. Again, there are still some ugly lineups. There are some depth questions. There are some, some scheme fit questions with so many players who operate best with the ball in their hands. But this team isn't bad, which is a lot more than we can say about some of the Bulls teams of the last few years. That was a way to put it kindly. The other thing to know, too, is that I don't, I don't really think that this has impacted their offense too much, but Kobe White has yet to play as mm-hmm. he's dealing with the, the shoulder injury. This next question comes from Andre, and I'm assuming that this is this person's name. I apologize if I got it wrong. What's the most interesting stat you have ever seen? Wow. I have one, if you're ready. Talk about a tough question when you did not see the question before starting to record. So if you're ready, like, go for it. (laughs) This is is just, like, my favorite stat of all time because it was put – 
on a TV broadcast. It is so utterly ridiculous and cherry-picked, but I respect it. Is this you the Thaddeus Young one? The Thad Young Pacemaker yes. broadcast graphic. Um, it was from, I think it was when they were Fox Sports. I don't think they're still Fox Sports. Players with 800 games, at least 800 games under their belt to average at least 13.5 points, 5.9 rebounds, 1.4 steals, shoot 49% from the floor and 30% on three-pointers. So those are the benchmarks. Is just whenever you're using the decimals of 13.5, 5.9, 1.4. Now, the company he joined at the time was Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James. And there was Thad Young. I respect the hell out of whoever's call it was to put that up on the broadcast. That is my favorite stat I've ever seen because it was just on TV and like so utterly ridiculous. And those in the end, those are my favorite stats. There are stats that I lean on more than most when you're actually looking to instruct and inform yourself. However, the cherry pick stat, like the cherry pick stats are great sometimes where it's like, you look at, okay, the, someone posted like LeBron's record over the past year or LeBron's record this season without Alex Caruso, Alex Caruso's record without LeBron. Like those stats are funny to me, but this one was just so ridiculous and posted in such what you would think is a formal or official environment. I just, I have no choice but to respect the hell out of it. It's still to, to date, like the favorite, like my favorite thing that I've ever seen just because it's so ridiculous. I've got one. I don't, I don't know that I would say this is the most interesting stat I've ever seen because, again, like that's, that's tough, top of mind. But I do have one, and it's historical for you. Larry Bird played exactly 100 different players at least 30 times during his career. He had a winning record against all of them but seven. Byron Scott, Magic Johnson, Michael Cooper, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Kurt Rambis are the first six. And they might have had something in common, like all playing on that dynastic Los Angeles Lakers team. And then Jack Sigma, <laughs> who did not. I mean, that is actually like an interesting stat. It is. So Jack Sigma, for the record, just owns Larry Bird on the basketball court. Yeah, I don't. Was there ever any doubt? Like, that, if though? you don't, like, it, it is a travesty that Jack Sigma did not take Larry Bird's place on the NBA 75 list. I can't believe Dwight Howard didn't make that list. I don't really want to waste breath on reacting <sighs> to it, but yeah. that's just like, did we forget how good prime Dwight Howard was? I that was also, a bad exclusion. There are a lot of, there are a number of bad exclusions. Do we want to dive into this rabbit hole? <laughs> I'm just, I'm over. I don't like the holier than now responses to the snub where it's like, we get it. Dwight Howard was off, but then there are people that are just like so, like angry or on a soapbox about it. Like that's the stuff that that's the discourse I can't stand. Is like spare me your holier than now shtick. You're almost as bad as the people that snubbed Dwight Howard in that case. But there are obviously legitimate qualms, and I think you look at the panel. I think it's cool that there were you know present and former players on it. But there are people on that panel where it's like, what are they doing on there? Right. It, yeah. And like, I, I believe like Giannis was on the panel and nothing but love for Giannis, but like he also hadn't watched the NBA until like the mid 2000s when he learned in a internet cafe, like who Kevin Durant was midway through his career. And like, you know, again, like no offense to the guy, but you're not going to learn about the entirety of NBA history well enough to formulate a list of 75 players within the last decade like that. 
I, I, yeah. And I think if you include players at all, and this would just be, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there are, maybe players were able to separate themselves. They're already members of the media and remove their playing days. I would still think that players are going to favor others who played during their era. Absolutely. Versus, you know, like Steph is going to favor Dame over maybe prime Dwight like that. Maybe that's too close, but like Steph is going to favor Dame over James worthy or whatever. I also just, I struggle with any sort of list like this when there isn't any inclusion criteria. I, or, I don't really know what ranking. they're ranking. Yeah. That matter. <laughs> right. And I don't like, are we looking at the players who are fully integral to the history of basketball? In which case, like, sure. Dave DeBusher belongs. Bill Sharman belongs. Are we looking at the best careers? Because then like, they probably don't. Are we looking at the best pure basketball players? And because that isn't clear from the get-go, it's just hard to know well enough to really care. Who was your biggest snub? Was it Dwight Howard? Yeah, it's, it's Dwight Howard. But I think that if you aren't mentioning Pau Gasol and Alex English as significant snubs, then I don't really care about your opinion on this anyway. I was interested to see the number of people that seemed outraged by Kyrie Irving not being on it. Yeah, I don't get that one. Like to to me, um, you know, like you can you can come up with name after name. Um, Adrian Dantley, Kevin Johnson, Pau Gasol, Dwight Howard, Bob Lanier, who was actually on the voting panel, Alex English. I would say Artis Gilmore deserves a lot I- more love in these conversations. Like the list goes on and on, and you can find players to remove, but like I don't really get the argument for Clay Thompson, for Kyrie Irving. Here's 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 a hot take that I I was actually discussing with friend of the podcast and a friend of both of ours, Jacob Bourne, who's also a big Golden State Warriors fan. He was mad about Clay. He, he no, he actually does not think Clay belongs. I don't think uh, he belongs either. But uh, right. So so here's my question: Steph obviously belongs, but the the Warriors dynasty. Who do you think? is actually the second most deserving player. Because I think you can make a real case for Draymond Green over Clay Thompson in this conversation. You can, but I also think it might be immaterial because if, if either of those guys are going to make this type of list, we need to see more of their career unfold. Agreed. Uh, the toughest one for me, aside from Dwight Howard, and I think that this would have been a stretch, I was a little bit surprised that Manu Ginobili wasn't on it. But that might just be like only my... having one member of that Spurs dynasty is interesting. And I'm not including like the David Robinson era of that dynasty. Uh, like Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, it's really hard to tell the history of basketball without giving them a little bit more credit. No, I... Ben Wallace is really interesting. I, I just felt like stylistically, and you don't know if you're ranking it in importance to the game, but like stylistically, I feel like Manu Ginobili had a very huge impact on. Mm just the way that the game is played or, I mean, there've been like D'Angelo Russell came to the league talking about like how he admired, that's just someone more recently speaking to mind about how he watched a lot of Manu Ginobili. Right. So I don't know that I was surprised and I, I feel like I have too much of a soft spot for Manu Ginobili, but he was the, he, him and um, Frank Nielakina. Those were the, those were the other shocking ones. Imagine me. how he did this conversation would have been if Grant Hughes were on here now too. <laughs> oh man. For, talk about someone who appreciates Manu Ginobili. <laughs> Let's get to these final two questions. This one, I feel like it'd be a quick one. It's from at, it's at SDM 84 underscore. Didn't have a name attached to their handle. I always wondered what the game would be like, or I always wondered how the game will react if they remove the three point line. 
why would they remove the three-point line at this point? I thought, like, if you want to move it back or institute a four-point line, I think either of those are way more likely than to remove the three-point line. Yeah, I mean, I think that would just have a tremendous adverse effect because you would be going, you would be hearkening back to the early pre-ABA merger days, which, yeah, there was a lot of interesting, compelling basketball being played. It was also way more big man dominated, way more we're going to throw the ball into the low post and let guys go to work because all of a sudden the post up becomes the primary source of offense. Like the reason that the three point line has an effect is because it's worth an extra point and it changes the math associated with each shot. So if you're now entering an era of the NBA in which a shot from two feet is worth the same as a shot from 23 feet, why the hell are you going to take the 23 foot shot? Like it's, you're going to have a lot more congestion. You're going to have a lot more injuries because athletes have gotten bigger, faster, stronger, and more physical since the advent of the three-point line. And now you're going to put them in a more consolidated, heavy traffic area of the court with a lot more physicality. You're going to have a ton more injuries. You're going to have a lot less entertaining play. And like, I'm all, I'm all for bringing back post-up play because it's entertaining to watch a guy like Kevin McHale go to work with just like a dizzying array of low post tricks. It was really fun to watch Al Jefferson operate from the low blocks. It's not a particularly efficient strategy in today's NBA. If you can expand the, 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 the size of the two point area and move the three point line back and make players not prioritize that shot as much, but still force defenses to cover out to those areas. And yeah, maybe you bring a, you bring some low post play back into the equation, but just removing it entirely would be a disaster. Are you pro? Also, if you remove the three point line, what would Duncan Robinson shoot? She's, is he going to take a shot that's worth two points? I just can't imagine. I mean, he's it. probably not going to be in the NBA, right? Are you pro or against a four point line? I'm against it. And maybe I'm just a little bit too much of a traditionalist with this, where it's like, to me, it feels like more of a gimmick. And I get that that was also the counter argument against the advent of the three point arc at first, but it feels like just an unnecessary inclusion. We already have complaints about homogenous offensive styles, even if the ways that teams generate their three-point heavy offenses are still divergent enough that it's entertaining to watch the various ways that three-point looks are generated. But if you just if you include a four-point line where like you're just gonna have a select number of guys occasionally like hoisting up a shot from 45 feet, like do we really want to watch that? I'm kind of with you. I might be with it if it's like maybe only in crunch time or like, does that help it like erase deficits quit, like make games closer if there are blowouts and is there a way to like sort of implement it only if the score gets to a certain point or a certain time left in the game. But I could totally understand where, where you're coming from. I'm a way bigger fan of removing below the break threes, just like having the arc trail off into out of bounds territory and removing the corner threes from the equation. Like, I think that's a much more compelling change to me because you're still like keeping the shot values relatively similar, but by taking away that area of the court, I think you're going to promote a lot more creativity on the, on the interior. Interesting. I might be more pro four point line than I am of getting rid of below the break breakthroughs though. 
This last question I thought was really interesting. Um, comes from why did I lose it already? Oh, Jake G. Which team do you think would have the best starting five if you could only choose from their bench? I I, I mean, my immediate instinct is the Atlanta Hawks, just because I think that it's the deepest team in the NBA, and once the pieces are healthy. You know, and, and we're assuming here that the starting lineup is Trey Young, Bogdan Bogdanovich, DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, and Clint Capella. And that still leaves you with a bench lineup of either DeLon Wright or Sharif Cooper or Lou Williams at the one, Kevin Herter at the two, Cam Reddish at the three, Danilo Gallinari at the four, and either Gorgi Jang or Anyeka Kongwu if he's healthy at the five. That's a good bench lineup. They were the team that I gravitated towards immediately for the sake. I figured you would pick them. So for the sake of just a little bit of variety here, I thought about the Knicks, Derek Rose, Emmanuel quickly, Alec Burks, Obi Toppin, Nerlens Noel. That's I know IQ is not off to the best start. That's like, that's, I don't know if that's a viable starting five, but that's not a terrible starting five by any stretch. No, it's definitely not. And I, I actually think that you could throw out, an, here's an interesting one. The Lakers might be an interesting one. <laughs> Why? Because Russ isn't on the court. <laughs> exactly. No, but I mean, like, Again, we're assuming health, but let's say Malik Monk, Taylor Horton Tucker, Wayne Ellington, Carmelo Anthony, and Dwight Howard. It's not a bad lineup. Uh, I don't know. That might be a little much for me. I thought, wouldn't you, uh, here, I guess, to frame it this way, would be you wouldn't think that the Pelicans would be a better choice than, and I'm not doing a tongue in cheek here, like, oh, Zion hasn't played, so he counts. You don't think the Pelicans would be a better option than the Lakers? Because if we're, let's just assume that Herbert Jones wouldn't be in the starting five. He started the past two games for, for New Orleans. So you would be dealing with, I don't even know if he would make your bench cut, but you know, you're dealing with Thomas Sadaransky, Trey Murphy, Josh Hart. Najee Marshall and Jackson Hayes I might prefer that to what you named the Lakers to be honest there are a lot of candidates I, I mean Sacramento Davion Mitchell Terrence Davis Buddy Heald Marvin Bagley and Tristan Thompson or Alex Len is intriguing Toronto like a Malachi Flynn Gary Trent Jr. Isak Bonga Scotty Barnes Chris Boucher lineup there's some there are definitely some intriguing candidates here it's so tough to do this this exercise because we're so early in the season and there have been like starting lineup changes already where Gary Trent's like started the past two or three games for right. the Raptors. It's like, would you, would you count? Also, I thought that was one of the funniest things that happened was I mean, you, can, you can throw Drogic into that lineup too. And it's still, it's still eminently intriguing. Uh, I thought it was funny. Masai said Gary Trent Jr. Was going to start. Then Nick nurse said he wasn't going to start. And then Gary mm-hmm. Trent Jr. Started. That's just, that's a fun aside. Do you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we roll out of here? This was a look, it was interesting to be back for the mailbags. I hope that people continue to send questions. You can always DM them as usual. I know a lot of people used to do that. Um, so we are back up. We're back to covering the league at at large. And um, this was fun. Do you have anything else that you want to get off your chest before we I think the battle? The only other thing is just a prompt for our listeners. Look, if you've, met, if you've made it this far into the episode, first and foremost, thank you. But secondly, we want to do whatever we can to entertain you all. So if you have an off the wall idea for a podcast, like Dan and I have always enjoyed doing the weird series. Sometimes they don't make it all the way through to the finish line because other things come up. Like we've tried to rank the the best 10 players for each franchise in the last decade. We've done stuff with jerseys and one-on-one tournaments and all sorts of stuff. And we're always 
interested in those more off the wall ideas. So if you have anything that you think would be compelling, let us know. We are we are not too proud to accept content suggestions. Yeah, well, I'm not. Dan Dan a, is, but I make him listen anyway. Yeah, I'm. I have no sense of humility whatsoever. I don't care what you guys think. They all our listeners know that's not true. Yeah, if, if it's a reoccurring series idea, maybe you want to hear it throughout the season, or what you want to see more or less of from us. That's also fine too. We're always open to suggestions. To that point, as noted at the beginning of this, please please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing and downloading every episode is the best way to help us, as is leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, whether or not you use it. And if this is your first time listening, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We are pleasantly sub-mediocre and only modestly insufferable. That is, that's a hallmark. That's a benchmark of greatness for league-wide NBA podcasts, in my opinion. So until next time, and as always, we leave it the shout out to the one, the only, anyone in the world who is not Jason Kidd. But also shout out Frank Nielakina.